Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should watch today's show. Questions around Tether just aren't going away. We'll discuss the latest report from the Wall Street Journal about Tether's loans. Plus, we take the pulse of the crypto market with co-founders of Framework Ventures, Michael Anderson and Vance, Vance Spencer will join us live. I'm Jeremy Varlow. Ash Bennington, back in the saddle after a few days off. How are you doing, Ash? Oh, it's great to be back in the hot seat. This is the last day of my vacation, but I'm loving it, man. I can't stay away from this. No, you certainly cannot. It's good to have you back. Before we jump into things, just want to mention this episode of the Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App delivers everything you need to stay on top of the world of crypto, your crypto holdings, including a market-leading price tracker, portfolio manager, analytics suite, and news feed, as well as a wide array of customizable alerts and widgets to help you keep up. Crypto moves fast, so don't get left behind. With over 4 million downloads, the Crypto App is the market's leading app for all things crypto. Download the Crypto App today on Google Play or the iOS App Store. Let's get right into things with some price action. A strong jobs report from the U.S. yesterday is having little impact on crypto prices. They are mostly unchanged on a 24-hour basis, Bitcoin trading around $17,000. It did fall around the time of the jobs report being released, but is mostly recovered. Bitcoin is up 2.5% for the week. Ash, how's Ethereum looking? Ether is making a slightly bigger move than Bitcoin in percentage terms on a 24-hour basis. Ether is now trading at $1,280. Ether's had a very solid week, though. Uh, Ether up nearly 7.5% on a trailing seven-day basis, Jeremy. Thank you for that, Ash. Another token we're looking at, and funny enough, it is a stable coin we are looking at, Tether. USDT remains the largest stable coin, but its total market cap has fallen around $4 billion since the FTX collapse. Once again, it's facing questions about its reserves, which brings us to our top story of the day. This is something that uh, you flagged for us, Ash. It is an article from the Wall Street Journal, which has once again raised questions about Tether and specifically the loans issued by the company behind it. The journal says the company behind Tether has increasingly been lending its own coins to customers rather than selling them for fiat currency up front. I know you're super interested in this, Ash. What's the issue here? Well, let's just walk through the reporting from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the journal says that the volume of these loans has been growing as a proportion of Tether's total assets. In the most recent report, loans outstanding reached over $6 billion on September 30th. That's 9% of the company's total assets. The loans were worth over $4 billion, or 5% of total assets, at the end of 2021. So obviously, this is a year-over-year -year comparison. Uh, the journal says that adds to the risk that the company may not have enough liquid assets to pay redemptions in a crisis. This according to the journal's analysis. Uh, the article goes on to say uh, that Tether calls them, quote, secured loans, close quote, uh, and then discloses little about the borrowers or the collateral that they accept in exchange for the loans. Uh, the journal goes on to say the company's reports show only U.S. dollar amounts for the loans and don't say uh, that the loans were made in Tether 
tokens. The report also says the loans were, quote, fully collateralized by liquid assets, close quote. The journal emphasizes that stable coins are anchors of the crypto ecosystem and at risk or perception of risk, according to the journal, uh, to the one-to-one peg Tether maintains to the U.S. dollar and could have huge ramifications for the entire crypto space. Again, in the analysis of the Wall Street Journal, Jeremy. Very interesting reporting. Uh, Now, I know that Tether has responded to that article, Ash, and that's something you want to dig into. What exactly did Tether say? Well, they came out swinging. Their statement is titled Wall Street Journal and Co. The Hypocrisy of Mainstream Media Asleep at the Wheel of Information. Uh, The article uh, bemoans what it sees as over scrutiny of Tether compared to under scrutiny of other players in the space. Uh, Tether says the most glaring error in the journal article is the claim that because Tether's secured loans of USDT were denominated in USDT, that Tether was then exposed to a decline in the value of USDT. Quote, this completely misses the mark. This is quoting Tether here. This completely misses the mark and mistakes USDT itself for the collateral that underpins it. Tether's secured loans are extremely over collateralized and even backstopped by Tether's additional equity if needed. Close quote. It goes on to say, quote, it is rather difficult to think of a scenario where secured loans present a risk to Tether's ability to redeem USDT tokens. Close quote. That's um, that's a quite interesting back and forth there, Ash. I, I I don't even know what to make of it. Yeah, it it is it is unusual uh, going after the journal so hard, particularly in the headline. Uh, you know, whatever the merits of this case, uh, one wonders if Tether understands how media works. You know, effectively, this is like dangling a red cloak uh, in front of the reporters of the Wall Street Journal. I'm sure in those editorial meetings this morning, uh, the journal is assigning reporters to go and dig in uh, and find whatever they can. That's just the way that media works. It's kind of like, you know, you don't taunt the quarterback's mother uh, at the end of the third quarter. You literally just wind up firing everybody up in the locker room. It's a really weird strategy, uh, aside from all the other things which are very much uh, open questions here. I would also say that uh, that Tether goes after the New York Times uh, in the article. Specifically, uh, they cite a tweet, a tweet by uh, by um, a Coindesk reporter uh, making reference to uh, reference to bank runs, uh, effectively using bank run as a metaphor. Uh, you know, it has to be said in relation to FTX. I should say that the that the use of run on the bank in relation to FTX was was not the best metaphor. But you know, we have to say uh, right in the interview uh, with Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, over at the New York Times at the Dealbook conference, Sam Bankman Fried used the phrase run on the banks multiple times uh, in his testimony more than once. Uh, so, you know, th- there's a, there's a, it's an interesting strategy right now being pursued by Tether. Uh, and I suspect the upshot of it is going to be that we're going to get more coverage on Tether. We have to say, though, uh, just in fairness to Tether right now, their media strategy notwithstanding, uh, the peg still holds. Uh, and that's an important point to make. That's where we are right now, Jeremy. Don't go after the quarterback's mother in the third quarter. That's a new one for me. I'm going to use that. Thank you for that one. That's a beauty. Uh, I want to go to our guests and get their input on this. But before we get to them, a very quick word from our friend and co-founder, Ral Powell. Uh, We are running a special promotion on the Real Vision Essential Tier until the end of the year. If you sign up by Sunday, you get access to that Real Vision Essential Tier completely free All the details are available at realvision.com forward slash free until 23. Go check it out. Let's get to our guests, Michael Anderson and Vance Spencer, co-founders of Framework Framework Ventures. Pardon me. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Let's get right into it. Take it away, Ash. 
Mike, Vance, pleasure to have you both back with us. Great to be here. So, so first, first question, guys. Obviously, the events of the last couple of weeks have been monumentous. Uh, where are Framework Ventures at this time? How has this impacted your shop? Actually, first, I know you guys have both been on Real Vision before, uh, and we've had a long-form conversation about the things that you do at Framework Ventures. But if you could, uh, before you talk about where you guys stand today, tell us a little bit about what you do at Framework. Sure, yeah. Um... Uh, probably just to take it back to the beginning, what we focus on is early stage investing in the Web3 ecosystem. Uh, we started in 2019, uh, really focused with our, our first fund on DeFi. Uh, we, we probably were the ones that came out first to be able to say we wanted to go head first into the DeFi ecosystem and, and really focus on that. Since then, we've expanded the aperture lens in terms of what we invest in. It's, it's really you know games, social crypto, infrastructure services, uh, middleware technologies. Uh, wallets and, and kind of the whole gamut. Um, we have expanded the team, expanded the funds, um, raised our third fund earlier this year, but really the, the strategy has remained the same, which is that we focus on seed and series A investing in this space. Yeah, uh, so and, and just to just to be clear, we you know weren't impacted by basically any of the events of, of this year, Luna, Three Arrows, Celsius, uh, BlockFi, and FTX. Yeah, we, we dodged all of those. Um, we, we are not really you know investors in those ecosystems. Spiritually, you know, we're we're more Ethereum aligned, I would say, as a, as a high level for the firm. And so, essentially, you're saying you were able to dodge this by not investing in those projects, and also presumably not having uh, assets on centralized exchanges. Correct. So, so let's talk about a little how this in, in impacts the broader VC uh, ecosystem more broadly. Obviously, there have been some big firms here with Exposure, Sequoia, Paradigm. Uh, what's the impact on the space that you guys play in? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, it's uh, gargantuan to some firms. Uh, in some cases, like ourselves, it's you know pretty de minimis in terms of the direct impact. There are secondary effects that we have to work through. You know, There's the, the negative press bias uh, on this industry. I think that that's something that we're going to have to be sorting out for uh, a while longer. Um, there's also the implications of some you know portfolio companies, and and the first thing you know when, that we do whenever there's a crisis uh, of liquidity or a crisis of you know a, a bankruptcy is we contact all of our portfolio companies and see you know who's who had exposure, who had you know issues, um, who had assets on the platforms. Uh, fortunately, because most of our philosoph philosophy, as Van said, is aligned with pure decentralization, um, uh, we, we and our portfolio companies largely remained unscathed. Um, but I think you know the, the big narrative here is that decentralization wins. Um, centralized, especially unregulated centralized counterparties, um, you know, as we've seen time and time again, are, are just entities that should, should either be centralized, or should, should be regulated, or they should be decentralized. Um, and so I think that furthers the narrative that we've been pushing for the last three years. But I think in the in the meantime, we're going to have to sort through some of the the negative bias uh, to push that narrative further. Yeah, it's such an important point, and you're absolutely right that there is this sort of huge cloud of uh, indiscriminate negative media attention. Paul Krugman, I think, out today uh, with another article in the New York Times saying essentially crypto doesn't do anything. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's a marker of a bottom of a kind. Uh, but look, you know, there's definitely been this sort of negative collateral impact to the space in general in terms of uh, reputational damage. Uh, when these things happen, they are not pretty and they're not pleasant. Uh, but you made a very important point, and I was wondering if you could unpack the thesis a little bit. Uh, about the 
power of true uh, decentralization. Obviously, what we've seen now, I mean, I and uh, other people have made these points before, uh, that effectively what we've seen is the failure of centralized entities. Uh, you know, to me, you could say this is in many ways no different from what happened at, I don't know, pick them, LTCM, uh, MF Global. There are a whole series of traditional financial companies that have failed uh, for reasons very similar to what we saw happen over at FTX. Talk a little bit, if you would, about the promise of true decentralization and how that's different for people who are trying to get that sorted out in their own heads. Yeah, I mean, F FTX was a corporate governance and and partially like an investor enablement problem. It wouldn't have mattered if Sam was operating a string of laundromats. Um, he would have just been able to steal the money in the same exact way. You know, that is that is the base case here. In terms of why decentralization is important, you know, autonomous smart contracts, self-custody, decentralized application with transparency, with governance, with proxies to cash flow. Um, like those are the things that we are fighting for and the things that we think that are important. And, you know, if you think about the bull run of the past two years, the 2020 bull run felt very healthy, you know, that, that specific year. Everyone was using DeFi, you know, the, the technology was clearly useful. It embodied most of the most powerful concepts about the space. And then we had, you know, the SBFs, the FTXs of the world, the centralized exchanges that were custodial, that were more of just a, a perversion of the core concepts that we think are powerful and, and just took it in a, a totally different direction. And that was kind of what powered the whole 2021, you know, bull run and like the metaverse and like, you know, the high leverage speculation on these exchanges and, and those things just never felt very healthy. And so, you know, where are we right now? It kind of feels like we're back towards the end of like, you know, the beginning of 2020 where things were more fundamental, credit wasn't as easily available, you know, the centralized exchanges, FTX didn't exist at that point in time. And it feels like we're just getting back to the basics. And I think that's the most powerful thing that we can be doing right now is just focusing on the concepts that are important. Mike, I'm going to ask you to jump in there because uh, Vance listed a string of things that he believes are very valuable and important uh, in the space in terms of uh, decentralized governance, uh, decentralization more generally. Unpack that a little bit and tell us what it means, how that ecosystem, the ecosystem of the future that you guys are so passionate about might actually work pragmatically for people who aren't as close to the space as you are. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe let's take the FTX example and unpack that as if it were to be uh, decentralized, but also permissioned and regulated uh, application. So let's say most of the people who are interacting with either FTX, Coinbase, Kraken, any of the centralized uh, providers, the reason why they're doing that is because of ease of use. You know, it's actually still pretty hard to have a MetaMask account, to have a ledger device and, and, and transact on chain for financial yes. services. Um, the interface, the, the front end and the consumer application is probably something that could be and should be centralized. And that's, you know, the enablement of ease of use, customer service, being able to see your assets in real time, um, maybe having an iPhone app that actually enables a, a lot of this functionality, that, that's stuff that consumers likely want. But the difference and, and the core difference is what happens on the back end. When you're taking and ripping out, you know, these black box centralized providers, and not able to see the assets, not able to see the transactions, not able to see, you know, like this wallet address actually corresponds with the address that I can see in that front end application. Without that transparency, you you just have to trust in the institution and you have to trust in, in the people who are running it to be able to know that they're doing the right thing. They're not commingling funds and, and not using them in uh, you know, illicit ways or, or non uh, aligned ways. And, and so right. our idea of what a lot of these financial applications of the future could represent looks a lot and feels a lot like the centralized institutions that we're talking about. But 
instead of having these black box backends, you're able to, to rip that out and actually have transparent protocols that have decentralized governance. So the decision making of these protocols themselves is up to a decentralized governing body of people who are aligned and have perspectives and have insight into these protocols. You can verify the assets on chain. You can you can see the transparency on chain, um, and it just enable it, it enables a, a more fair and easy uh, to understand and transparent financial ecosystem for DeFi. But it still has that user experience that I think most people will want. So you know that's kind of our vision for what this future end state of DeFi could look like. Um, right. And and yeah, that's that's what we're pushing for right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You said the magic word there, which is trust. I would argue that you can't have centralization and deregulation at the same time. Uh, it just doesn't work. We've seen it happen again and again. And as you guys both have pointed out, not just uh, in the crypto side, but also in the traditional financial space. I want to ask you guys one more question before we bring Jeremy back in, who's got some more uh, news stories that he wants to hit with us. Uh, the question is this. So as you look at the ecosystem right now, uh, what are you excited about? And what, if anything, are you avoiding uh, in the wake of FTX? So <clears throat> there's a lot to be excited about at a high level. Um, I'll just go category by category. If you look at gaming, like this is where the top of funnel is, is the, the base case is the strongest. If we're thinking about pulling a billion people into crypto in, in the next two years, not going to be music NFTs, not going to be PFPs. It has to be games. And so like all of the games that were funded in 2021 are starting to release and, and it's just starting to happen. And we're starting to see, you know, proof points on a small, small scale that, that it's working games with 2 million monthly active users where people are using a backend of crypto and they don't even know about it. Like those are the things where, you know, you have this thesis and then you have it play out. That's the, that's the middle part. That's where you want to start building more proof points. And that's very positive. DeFi, incredible. Had 120 billion of TBL at the peak of the last bull market and had maybe a few billion in or a few million in bad debt throughout all of this. Like that is mature. It's scaled. It's moved to L2s. It's ready for prime time. And the user experiences in the wallets are actually starting to improve as well. And so those two categories are really the things that we're at core excited about. But there's tons of exciting stuff around risk management, security, and, and all things like that that is also just like helping develop the space. And um, yeah, it's very positive. It's not just bad news. Hey, let me ask you this about the gaming ecosystem. Uh, I am not a gamer any longer. I was an incredibly passionate one when I was younger, not surprisingly. Uh, but the question is, you know, it's interesting to see because there's been so much pushback uh, from gamers in the space, particularly around NFTs, I think around the perception uh, that there is an extractive component to this. Uh, it's not something that people have really embraced. And yet, you know, when you look at those two technologies, it seems so obvious that there could be an ecosystem in the future that develops in a way that's incredibly aligned uh, with players and with their passions and with their energy around the space. How do you guys think about it? Where are we in that process? And maybe it's sort of inevitable that the first round uh, of these types of uh, things, particularly around the NFT aspect of gaming, would have been extracted. But how do you guys think about that? And how is it empowering users and gamers? Yeah, great question. I, I, I would say the, the first era of games was the Axie Infinities that ultimately had an economic model that was not sustainable. Um, and what you have kind of sim simultaneously, you've got two ends of the spectrum. You've got the Web3 native people like the Axie team, Sky Maven, 
who are trying to figure out how to build fun and engaging games. And then on the flip side, you've got a number of different game developers who are looking at this industry, not just as the next platform, but, but frankly, as the next and only business model for the free-to-play games that they've been building for the last couple of decades. They know how to build games. They've been building them, the viral loops, the user feedback mechanisms to be able to attract customers, and they know how to make fun to play. And what they view crypto as, and, and NFTs in particular, is just a new business model where you've got, instead of you're purchasing a, a virtual asset, a virtual item in a game that goes away in a month or two months, whenever it is that you're tired of the game and you've spent that money and, and it's gone, you can now imbue that value into an asset that can live on chain and, right. and you can continue to have with you for a long period of time, or you can sell it in the secondary marketplace and recoup right. some of that value. Um, so really the first step in our minds is a new business model for games you know one to three percent of free to play uh, players actually monetize um, that monetization level is about a hundred billion dollars a year in revenue so we're talking about one of the largest markets in the world and yeah. our view is that if you can actually have an nft that instead of a virtual asset that goes away that monetization level probably increases by by a factor of two to three maybe ten percent ten times and and so that's really the first step the second step is and this is the trojan horse that Vance is referring to once you have the ability to have 100 million people with private key access, maybe they don't even know that they have this asset on the back end. And that's the Trojan horse into getting people into the ownership economy of these games where they can feel like they're actually owning part of the game. They can feel like they're governing part of the game potentially right. with some of these assets. They can feel like they're making decisions as a community with, with you know their ownership in these in these games. That completely flips the model of you know having these game companies be value extractive and try to get people to buy more things in game and, and entice them with fun to play. But now you're actually collaborating with the players of the game and, and you have a very aligned perspective um, right. and, and you can leverage that community to build better and better games. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's all about figuring out ways to empower users, empower gamers. And ultimately, that's the promise, the ability to actually own your own assets in a way that uh, you can transfer them, you can hold them, you can sell them. Uh, and I think ultimately, that winds up being better for the game developers as well as you build more trust uh, into the ecosystem. I want to bring Jeremy Varlow back in. Uh, Jeremy, what else are we looking at today? Well, I'll be honest, I just want to talk more about Web3 Gaming because that got me really excited. But uh, we've had some notable comments on the regu regulatory front in the U.S., again reported by the Wall Street Journal. These comments came from Rostin Benham, chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or the F CFTC. He has urged Congress to pass legislation that would impose strict rules on cryptocurrency exchanges. That includes rules to limit or prohibit the conflicts of interest that contributed to FTX's collapse. Benham also reiterated he still supports the controversial Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act that was backed by Sam Bankman-Fried that would give his agency authority to police trading in Bitcoin, Ether, and other digital assets classified as commodities. Ash, what do you make of these comments? No, well, two obvious points. Uh, this is something of a turf battle that we're seeing right now between CFTC and SEC about who's going to be the primary regulator of the digital asset space. Uh, and second, this phrase, the, the Sam Bankman-Fried supported bill, gosh, it's just it's just such a toxic environment right now. Uh, and it really is challenging, I think, to, to get clarity about what the best regulation is, how to best frame the space uh, in the wake of this very difficult period uh, right now in crypto, Jeremy. Yeah, no doubt. We've also heard that that controversial DCCPA bill is now on hold until the new Congress is sworn in in January. Can't say there's much of a surprise there, Asha. Yeah, it's just too hot to handle. Uh, Mike Vance, what do you guys think of this? 
I think it's uh, positive that we are moving in a direction of more legislation. Uh, we were vocally not fans of the DCCPA and, and opposed it, um, mostly because I thought, and we thought, just the things that were in there unfairly biased towards the business that Sam was operating. Um, but I do think there's a bunch of common sense legislation that we can hopefully get done in the next you know, year, that'd be great, that puts the US on even footing with a lot of international jurisdictions so that the industry doesn't leave. Like nobody here is, is, a, is opposed to rules. I think we're opposed to rules that basically de facto kill the industry, de facto give one participant favor versus the other. But, you know, like at a high level, um, I think most of this is, is very positive discourse. Like people now can very clearly understand the difference between what CFI is and what DeFi is. CFI is the guy who steals all your money. DeFi is the money that you have in your pocket. Um, and I think most people are really oriented towards building a, a constructive regulatory framework for the concepts that are powerful like DeFi to continue to exist in the US. So um, I don't know if we can say a whole lot more at this point, like we're just kind of waiting for things to come out. But I think you're going to see just like you had, you know, Al Gore and a bunch of senators kind of like put their imprimatur on, on legislation around the internet. Someone's right. going to take that flag and run with it because it's going to be a huge, you know, career making um, piece of legislation that happens. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are going to want to lay claim to it. Well, let's just hope it doesn't favor those who've donated the most money. Mike, anything to add to that? Um, yeah, just to, to piggyback, I, I think there's also a number of other points of regulation that uh, maybe even uh, more fast-tracked than the DCCPA. There's kind of a movement towards stablecoin regulation and, and creating yeah. a, a, a de facto CBDC for the U.S., um, I, I think there's going to probably be, you know, to, to Vance's point, uh, probably going to be something that happens in 2023. You know, there's a question as to whether or not DCCPA would happen in 2022. Obviously, that's been pushed off. Um, and, you know, the way that uh, it seems like most of the conversation is going, it, it's going to be by, it's going to have to be bipartisan. It's going to have to be something that you know, calls into question a lot of the unregulated centralized finance. And, and so I would expect that 2023 is the year where we hopefully get some clarity. Bipartisanship in 2023. You're an optimist, Mike. Uh, Jeremy, jump back in. I understand there's one more story you're looking at. Yeah, of course. And this is an important one that's been in the public discourse in the last couple of weeks, but something that's flown under the radar with everything else going on. It relates to royalties and NFTs, an important development in the world of NFTs. Solana-based marketplace Magic Eden has released code that allows creators to enforce royalties on new NFT collections. OpenSea made a similar move a week or two ago. The block says that this is a U-turn for Magic Eden, which in October proposed dropping enforced royalties. Ash, this is a big ongoing debate in the NFT space. What do you make of it? Yeah, you know, I can see the validity of both sides of this argument here. Obviously, people uh, want to pay the lowest possible price they can to transact in NFTs. Uh, they want the frictionless markets uh, to operate in a way that's seamless. Conversely, and I know this isn't the most popular opinion, it's probably the direction that I come down in, is the idea of what makes NFTs so special is that you can build in uh, the capacity to have perpetual revenue streams uh, just going on in perpetuity. And that's what makes NFTs, in, in my view at least, so different from any other object. You know, if I sell you uh, this mug, uh, I don't get any money if you sell it for 12 times more in six months. And I really think uh, that that's something that's so critical to the space. In terms of the level uh, of where those royalties are, uh, I suspect we're going to continue to see them fall. Uh, I know at times they seem to, to be a bit high, uh, and I think that's some of what users were pushing back on. Uh, but I'm curious, Mike Vance, do you guys have strong feelings about this subject? 
I, I would say like you're right. That is what makes NFTs powerful, or else we might as well just send each other JPEGs on the internet and you know pay right. in cash for the, for the primary sale. So like you kind of need to protect that. And when we saw Magic Eden drop their royalties, immediately knew that that was a bad idea. That they were going to come back on it. Um, and so like, what is the future of this concept? I think it's a few things. Number one, code enforced royalties on L1s. You know, that's kind of like the only right. way that you can do it. Number two, you build layer twos that basically have that built in and you're like any NFTs that are launched on this chain, like it has, like, this is the royalty chain. And I'm sure that'll be a selling point for, for NFT, you know, creators and, and that'll bring them on board. But broadly, I think, you know, if you take a step back, OpenSea was the, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the room during the last bull run. There's a lot of people testing them, you know, no royalty marketplaces, royalty marketplaces on different exchange, on different chains, um, you know, like, you know, testing different types of creators, like maybe gaming or, or games like want to have a different NFT aggregator than, you know, just like OpenSea, which is for PFPs. And so I think you're going to see this market change a lot, not just in terms of economics, but in terms of verticals. And those verticals yeah. are going to want very different things. The gaming developers that we talk to, they're salivating when they see that 2% royalty cut on the assets that change hands. And that's like basically core to the whole thesis of things like free to own and just like, you know, velocity based economies in crypto. So you can expect them to, you know, maybe the PFP people don't care because that might just be art if you're people. But if you're a gaming studio and your whole economic value prop is based around this idea, yeah. you're going to fight hard to it. You're going to pick a chain based on it. Um, it's going right. to be a lot different. Yeah, I think everyone who's a content creator in the NFT space is going to care about this. Uh, I guess the other way that we could see this go is balkanization of ex uh, of effectively the exchanges where it can only be traded on proprietary exchanges. Otherwise, it's not a valid transfer and the benefits don't transfer across. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? It just goes back to what I was saying earlier with, uh, with NFTs. Um, it presents a new business model for the creator of those NFTs. There will be the, the massive, highly priced PFP, one of one, unique assets where it may just be something that you sell once and then you know, the provenance is the value that you can describe to it over a long period of time. If you're building, and, and games usually seem to have this you know, uh, predilection where they want to have velocity be the thing that dictates the business model for their ecosystem, their marketplace. I think we're just going to see, as Van said, you know, verticalization, and then with that, different business models for the NFTs. NFTs just represent software, so it's going to be something that is competitive. It's going to be something that's dynamic. Um, it's going to change a lot before we find that canonical example for each one of these verticals. Jeremy, anything to add? I mean, it's it's an ongoing debate, and it's certainly an interesting one. I'm I'm curious to see how it shakes out. I've I've been looking at Blur.io as as an NFT marketplace recently, and you can change your royalties for different marketplaces. And I think that's a very interesting way of looking at things uh, when you go to list an NFT for sale. Um, so I mean, there's a lot to come of this. I'm very curious to see how Magic Eden and OpenSea approach it. Uh, because as the guy said, you know, there's a lot more competition in this space and people fighting for, for more and more real estate. So I wanted to now jump into some viewer questions. We've got some interesting stuff uh, that uh, that's coming to us. CryptoFax on YouTube asking uh, for both Mike and Vance, do you think there will ever be a layer two EVM for Bitcoin? And a follow up to that, do you believe we will ever see NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain? By the way, for those who so, don't know, EVM is Ethereum virtual machine. There, there is a, there already exists a layer two EVM for Bitcoin. It's called Rat Bitcoin, and they put it on Ethereum. And Ethereum is the EVM. And unfortunately, I think that's the destiny of a lot of the Bitcoin-denominated assets. Like, if you're holding Bitcoin right now, what can you do with it? 
all the centralized lending desks are now dead. You can't go get money against it from a, you know someone who will take your physical Bitcoin and give you cash against it. So you literally need to go wrap it and put it on DeFi. And you know that's how you can productively use it. And that is the L2. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, well, the only thing I'd add is that I, I think it's going to be exceedingly difficult for any of the perspectives of the Bitcoin core to change. Um, it's not going to be something that moves quickly. You can look back on all the different, you know, negotiations and discussions around the upgrades of over the last ten years of Bitcoin. Um, you know, those are drawn out battles, uh, wars over very minute changes to the core. Um, and thinking about building something like a virtual machine on top of it, that that would be a you know order of magnitude bigger change. I can see. I can feel the Bitcoiners are unhappy by that with this. <laughs> right. So there's no need to be upset. So I've got another question, and this is coming from our own crypto host, Elaine Lee. And I know she is sitting watching this and she's very curious for this answer. And I'm actually upset that she's never asked me this question because I'm big into Web3 gaming myself. But what is your favorite blockchain game which you've invested in right now? What are you most excited about? Or wish you would have invested in. Or wish, mm -hmm. yes. I don't think we've missed any that we really you know, wanted to invest in just because like the early era ones... <laughs> We're a little bit of uh, just a dumpster fire when all was said and done. I think, you know, games like uh, Alluvium, games like Pixels, games like Neopolis, like those are the ones where we're starting to see the proof points. And like, they're not huge proof points yet. We still need these games to break out to hundreds of millions of users scale. But you look at the DAUs and you look at the session times and, and it's encouraging. And I think that's kind of where we're at. It's like, we're not looking for the home run. We're looking just for more proof points. And you know, next year, I think we're going to have even more. And then once you have enough, there's just a probability that one breaks out. And that's kind of what we're betting on. Hey, let me follow up on that. Which is the most fun to play right now? Not in terms of promise for the future, but what's actually fun to play right now? <laughs> Pixels is fun. Neopolis is fun. Um, like, that's the main thing. Like, not all these games are live yet. Like, right. And... You know, you go on the App Store, there's like literally hundreds of thousands of games that you could choose to play. We have like three that are live right now. So we're just, we're early. And it, that seems to be perpetually the case, but it is true. Uh, I was, I was going to say none of them because none of them are live right now. Um, and yeah. we've seen, we've seen betas, we've seen kind of demos, we've seen, uh, you know, tests of, you know, what the small user group looks like from a session perspective. I mean, all these things are, are, proof points of eventual success and we're in the we're in the business of investing in things that ultimately eventually become successful um but the the stuff that exists right now i think is not a fair or good representation of where we see web3 gaming going yeah that's i mean that's a very good point i i'm much the same i'm sitting on the sidelines you know invested in a bunch of these web3 gaming companies and i'm just like waiting with bated breath breath for them to go live i've seen some of the beta testing and it looks awesome but uh yeah until some of these actually go 100 live uh it's hard to it's hard to actually pinpoint your favorites interesting question here from paul e on the real vision website and this is in his words not ours your thoughts on the sbf 
Princess Diana rebuild tour with the usual, I was too dumb to realize what was going on and I'm far from a criminal mastermind. What are your thoughts on, uh, on, on kind of the media tour that SPF is doing right now? So people, my, my, my visceral reaction to listening to the interview yesterday or two days ago with Andrew Ross Sorkin and um, uh, listening to uh, the Good Morning America interview uh, frankly, is that you know my, he he has been media trained for this whole situation. Um, he knows how to deflect the questions. He knows how to to interject you know non answers. Um, it, it feels like this is all purposeful um, from from just my reading of the situation. Um, and uh, you know the whole line about I'm I'm going against my lawyers and saying this that that I think is actually kind of the the converse of what's actually happening. Um, and uh, it's tough to see because I think there's a, a, a you know, hundreds of thousands, billions of people who have been hurt by the situation um, to, to plead ignorance, to plead negligence, just feels like rubbing salt into a wound right now. Um, and and uh, I hope that the redemption arc doesn't continue for much longer. <laughs> you know, I'd it's like, interesting. Just to be clear, that, like a, a crime was committed at some point, mechanically. Um, either the funds were commingled from the start or there was a shortage on the Alameda side and funds were sent over to cover it at some point. And so... I understand why people like naturally have the knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, he's doing this apology tour, he's going to get away with it, um, because like that would imply that there's some sort of like plan with SBF. I think the reality is it's just like pure chaos, um, and you know, their crime was committed. It's as simple as that, uh, and I think it's just a matter of time. So I, I wouldn't put too much stock in this weird apology tour. I think this is just journalists trying to get a hot interview. Yeah, but he's agreed to do it, which is the interesting part. And what's strange to me is I think most of the smart people I know are on Mike's side of this, this idea that this is completely an orchestrated uh, sort of framework for him to spin out a story. I tend to be more on the van side with you, man, which is that this doesn't seem like there's a plan. This seems like it's just pure chaos. And I think that, you know, people have believed that, you know, this guy was a genius for so long uh, that it's entirely possible that he really is just flying by the seat of his pants here and that he may be going against the advice of at least some of his lawyers. I can't imagine a criminal defense lawyer who wants his, uh, you know, his client to go out and give a detailed hour and 15 minute live interview uh, streaming around the globe right after uh, the collapse of, uh, you know, the one of the largest exchanges uh, going down in the history of the space. Hard to believe that this is something that's been terribly well planned out. But, you know, I guess it is uh, certainly possible that this is part of a, a sort of a, a grand genius strategy. I haven't seen any evidence of it yet, but it's possible. So a follow-up question to that. This is Ralph H. on the Real Vision website asking uh, for Mike and Vance. Although I know your view of centralized finance, if FTX was one of Framework Ventures portfolio companies, what mechanisms would or could you have put in place to detect and prevent the self-dealing and commingling of assets that we've seen recently? Step one, a board of directors. Step two, Step aud <laughs> audited financials from a real, from a real accounting firm. Uh, you know, it's very basic stuff. I, I think you know, basic diligence would have suggested that there there was something uh, amiss here. Um, yeah, it, it's it's tough to see such reputable firms go after this in such meaningful ways. Step step three, you know, get segregated bank accounts for both entities. It, like, sure. I don't fault I don't fault the investors for SBF giving them fraudulent audited financials and and them taking them at face value you have to do that you're not going to go get your own you know accounting firm and go down to the bahamas and count all the beans yourself what they should have done in terms of diligence was ask people who are actually in crypto what is this guy like what are the open secrets in the industry that exists around this entity well they are 
He owns a market maker and an exchange. The market maker trades on the exchange. The market maker actively hunts customer positions. Like this is all an open secret. You literally just had to be in crypto. And I think that, you know, when you're throwing peanuts from web two, you know, into web three, this probably makes sense. It looks good on paper, but it just takes five minutes of being in crypto to know that this was completely rotten. And that's why we never went there. Yeah, I should say, obviously, lots of strong feelings about this, but we should point out, of course, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, no one at FTX has been charged yet. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has not been criminally charged, of course, uh, nor has any other entity associated with it, individual uh, or corporate. Uh, Jeremy, I understand there's one more question. One last question from friend of Real Vision, Santiago Velez, who was on the show yesterday. What about asset-backed NFTs and legal wrappers as a new business model for NFTs? That, that I think is actually pretty interesting, but the, the variable that needs to be figured out, and this is, this is something that we've been trying to figure out as well, is what is the legal definition on chain of something that has jurisdiction in, you know, a, in a physical space? So how do you bridge the analog and the digital? Uh, is something that we have yet to, yet to see. You know, I, knew, I know that there's been some movement in Wyoming LLCs. Um, you know, how you can have that translate into actions that are taken by the LLC or have that be recognized by a court of law. Those are the types of things that would need to happen. I, I don't think that those are too far off from happening. I, I think it's just a question of when you can find that jurisdiction. Anybody else have an opinion on that? No, no, I, I agree with Michael. All right, we will leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Again, another fascinating conversation today. I've got a few key takeaways. First, Ash, I just want to reiterate, it's don't mess with the quarterback's mother at halftime. Is that what it is? <laughs> at the end of the third quarter. At the end of the third quarter. I love that one. Halftime, probably also a bad idea. Yeah, fair. Because then the, then the coach is going to be screaming precisely what the guys at the Wall Street Journal, with the guys and gals who are editors of the Wall Street Journal are screaming right now. You're going to let these guys come into your house, push you around, and insult your mother? That's pretty much what's happening at the Wall Street Journal editorial meetings this morning and at the yeah. New York Times. Very well said. Never heard that before. By the, going by the way, these that. guys, the folks, the, the guys and gals at the Times and the Wall Street Journal, they know how to do investigative journalism. Uh, so I suspect we're going to see more reporting on this. Again, I'm, and I'm not coming down one way or the other uh, on where that reporting is going to lead. I'm just saying we're going to see more reporting. Yeah, it's the old play with the bull, get the horns analogy. And that leads into my first takeaway. Obviously, Tether under fire again from the Wall Street Journal in regards to its lending practices. The company behind Tether issuing a strong rebuttal to the claims. There will certainly be more to this story and we'll be covering here on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Uh, the gentleman, Mike and Vance, mentioning the decentralization continues to win and that those that support it and act on it are continuing to weather the storm through all of this. Uh, Obviously, this has been a very good uh, PR for the decentralization movement. People using, using decentralized uh, services more. Uh, they are using applications, decentralized government uh, governance, and self-custody and security. Uh, lastly, the gentleman mentioned uh, a few things that they're excited for in the world of crypto right now. Web3 gaming obviously being a huge, huge potential uh, DeFi user experiences, UI, UX, and wallets improving and increased interest in security self-custody, as I just mentioned. Lastly, the NFT royalty debate rages on. Many different players and marketplaces vying for the right solution. There will be people that try new things that may or may not work. This will continue 
to uh, to be a debate as to what the perfect solution is. And uh, again, we will be covering all of that here on Real Vision. I uh, just want to go back to Mike Vance for your final thoughts. I think you hit the nail on the head. Stay in the game. <laughs> Stay in the game. Yeah. Yeah, don't get blown out. Uh, and uh, pro-decentralization, um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Also, there, there is a plan. You know, we, we know which applications work. We know how to get users into crypto now. We know what tokens are useful for. We know what they're not useful for. We know, that, you know, the few common pitfalls to avoid. So, I don't, I don't know. The prognosis is pretty positive from where we're sitting. It's just going to be a little bit, but that's okay. Ash, your, uh, your key takeaways there. Well, I'm going to start with NFTs because I think this is such an important conversation. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had uh, dinner with a, a VC in the space who basically told me, hey, I respect your opinion on a lot of things, but you're totally wrong here. Royalties are going to zero. It's an inexorable march. There's just no way around it. Uh, so I'm heartened to see uh, that Mike and Vance agree with my view of it. I really just don't see royalties going to zero in the space. I think they may be reduced, uh, but I just don't think that that's ever going to happen. And I, re I really think this is an incredibly important issue because it speaks to the viability of NFTs as an entity uh, in the space more broadly. Uh, and finally, I just wanted to come back to obviously what I think is the most important point here uh, around the FTX debate, which is the importance of true decentralization uh, and what that means. And Mike and Vance both spoke to that very eloquently. Uh, some things that I don't think we really covered in detail here, but I think are going to be important in the future, cryptographically proven proof of reserves, proof of liabilities, uh, proof of assets. Uh, all of these things are just so incredibly important. Uh, and to harken back to something else that Mike and Vance said, I think it is just incredibly early in the space. And you know, we may have been at a point here uh, where the expectations of where the digital asset space were got ahead of where we really were. And I think that in many ways, coming back to these true first principles of decentralization, really what the space is about uh, at its core are really what's most important. Uh, and I want to give Vance some props for, I think, the best metaphor I've heard on FTX, which is saying it could have been a string of laundromats. That's absolutely spot on. It's a great metaphor. I think I'm going to steal that with credit, Vance. <laughs> Thank you to Michael and Vance from Framework Ventures for joining us. Thank you to Ash. Welcome back. Pleasure doing the show with you again today. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be on. Absolutely. That's it for today. This episode of the Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. Crypto App is your place for all things crypto. Download it today on Google Play or iOS App Store. Join us again next week. We'll bring you more of these fascinating conversations with industry experts, developers, analysts, and executives. See you Monday at noon Eastern Time, 5 p.m. London, live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.